Yeah, of course. Okay, cool. Perfect. Well, hi everyone. Welcome back to this new episode of my podcast. It's been a while since I haven't uploaded something, so here's episode number 10. Today I have with me a great friend of mine from, from uni, my ex-flatmate in two years actually, in first year and in, in third year. Christopher, how are you doing? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Um, thanks for the warm introduction. As yeah, as Vivek already said, um, my name's Chris. I lived with Warwick, uh, with Vivek in Warwick for two years, first year and third year. Had a lot of uh, fun times and good memories together. <laughs> and yeah, currently live in London since September again. Mm-hmm. Um, currently do my masters at LC, and yeah, happy to be here. Nice, nice. Um, so you, you you know how this works roughly. I explained to you before, and well, people listening to this. You know, the four people who listen to this no. might, might know as well. We pick up on the topic that we ended on last time. So the last time I spoke with Kevin, actually, and we ended on stupid movie preferences, like really dumb movie preferences. We were talking about Johnny English. We were talking about Borat and Ali G, which I'm sure you you know um, as well. Do you have any favorites, any um, dumb movies that you watch that... Yeah, personally, I mean, a lot of people are very much against like stupid comedy movies. Yeah, I must say, um, I I quite enjoy them. I'm very much a, like a casual listener. I'm not a casual viewer. Nice. I'm not the biggest fan of uh, some like horror movies or thrillers. Not because like I do not, unless they're like really high quality, and really high, uh, well made. Right. Um, but I'm a big fan of uh, stupid movies like. I don't know, Tropic Thunder. Or, oh, Tropic Thunder. Um, also, yeah, all sorts of other like easy, easy listens. I'm yeah, all, yeah, or yeah. easy watches. I'm always stuff thinking. you can you can rewatch easily, right? No matter how many times you watch it, it's still exactly. still it's still gonna be fun. Although, although I must say, I'm a person. I, I rarely watch uh, movies more than once, okay. unless they're they're really good. Just because, um, in general, I feel like my attention span isn't the longest, <laughs> and that's why if I if I really watch the movie once. Um, I I tend to then afterwards be not as interested in it or be on my phone during the movie. Yeah. And since I want to enjoy them, I tend to unless some like really good exceptions I want, uh, I tend to watch them once. But you can keep it on in the background or something like that, right? Even um, whilst because some people do that with Netflix, for example, they just watch a show and just have just stay on their phone. But you could like watch something just an easy. easy the thing watch. is, I must say, and I never really watch. Um, I, I stopped watching Netflix, I think, um, or, or a lot of movies and series, I think, back in my last year of school. Like, Wait, I'm a what? Huge... It, have you not seen anything since then? No, I, obviously, I watch stuff on Netflix. Okay. And um, from time to time, but like currently, probably most times, I watch stuff on Netflix is um, when I'm with my girlfriend okay. and put something on. But we actually, we actually ended up watching Ali G Show again. Oh, nice. And the other week I introduced it to her, and I find this is this is the thing I find fucking hilarious. For example, <laughs> like Ali Ali G talking to all these different politicians and making fun of them. <laughs> I don't know if you know the This Is America. Yes, yes. So I I like that kind of comedy where it's like um, taking it to a ridiculous point with yeah. like a live interaction aspect <laughs> where the I other love people don't one. know. Um, that he's like Erjan Morad, this security force guy, and then <laughs> you get like this, I don't know, congressman 
um, from Iowa or wherever it was, I think, yeah. to like pull his pants down and <laughs> protect themselves from, from terrorists. <laughs> so I think that kind of stuff, like bring out the ridiculousness in, in people's views, mm-hmm. is something I find quite interesting. Yeah, dude. I don't know. I don't know how these people believe all these crazy shits. Uh, that, for example, in this case, Ali G um, tells them. Or like, it's just it's just so baffling to me how people, um, you know, just even believe that he's he's not like faking it, like he's actually a legit person. Yeah, I I think I think the way they work around it is they most of the time they're very much legit, um, emails and production setup beforehand. Okay. And sort of lowering the people in, and then obviously they they um, have like. Well, before they actually get to the show part where all of a sudden Ali G or um, the different characters of um, Sasha Baron Cohen show up, yeah. it all looks super legit and most of them are very eager to get the name out there. They think they're going to be this huge show from Netflix, for example, which they are most likely interested in getting this publicity. Yeah. And then... Yeah, he's also just a fucking hilarious method yeah, actor, know how to pe- pull people's strings. Yeah, dude. I mean, it seems like he's just taking it to to an extreme every time, right? And and when people start believing what he says, he just makes it even worse and worse and worse. And there's uh, like there's no point where people are just like, nah, he's just he's just faking it or anything like that. They just keep on going. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. It's it's hilarious, man. It's no, hilarious. I I definitely I definitely have to agree on that. And that's also like stuff i watch on youtube from from time to time so that's actually yeah. that's how i most mostly consume most of my media youtube or or like in, in my free time yeah um i spent probably a ridiculous amount of time on youtube and it's so easy right you just keep on scrolling and there's new new videos like oh look at this this you, you might like this and it's like oh i do actually like this no exactly <laughs> exactly and this is sort of the, the issue i have with my like because i've not do not have the longest attention span and by now it's me there's quite a hurdle for me in trying to start a new series right and stuff like that because also there's so much availability in different series. So if I do not have like a recommendation from five friends saying this is the best series, yeah. I'm very much reluctant to start it just because I feel like it's a fairly long commitment. Yeah. And then also I just feel like YouTube can give you such a breadth of different stuff to watch from because I also watch a lot of I don't know, informative or political content on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But then also I know a lot of sports stuff, yeah. um, whether it's NBA, UFC, and also comedy videos and stuff like that on YouTube, and it's just yeah, this, those short clips, man, like comedy videos of of like you know the best jokes of Dave Chappelle or something like that, or even like short clips of um I don't know, this is what happened in the news today or something. If it's very short clips, it's it's like it's the right amount of time to like grab your attention, but not like lose it in the process as well because it's it's so short. De- definitely agree, and actually I have to shout out. Uh... One guy I've been following quite a lot over the oh like this comedian. Yeah. Um, actually I can't remind pronounce his name. He's like Stravos. Okay. That's his name. He's like this Greek comedian, and he mostly does crowd work. So also one of my favorite. It's similar to what Andrew Schultz does. Yeah. If you know him and and before his shows. Yeah. yeah, yeah like yeah. um taking the piss out of people, asking them, and yeah, just interacting yeah, yeah. a bit with the crowd and doing jokes off that. It's very much improvised, right? Yeah, and it's they so he, he does that kind of stuff as well, and it's absolutely hilarious. I'll show you, I'll show you after. Oh, dude, I, I will no. definitely have a look at that. 
but yeah, but that's that's essentially the issue for me. Just um, with on Netflix and everything, there being so much. I even have Amazon Prime as well. Yeah, and they just there's just so much stuff. Like I yeah, do not I know do. what to choose. And then YouTube algorithm has something nice which just filters all the crap, everything out for you. Yeah, to be honest, yeah. I'm not the type of guy who's like a big fan of. Uh, TikTok, for some, I don't have it just because I feel like it's it's too quick and most of the humor is too stupid for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is, like, if sometimes it get like you don't realize that when you're watching like these reels, for example, on Instagram or even TikTok videos, whatever. Sometimes for the time, time just flies by, and you're just looking at it, and then like two hours later, you're just like, the fuck have I done with my life? For the last two hours. Yeah, I, I downloaded it once, uh, TikTok, mm-hmm. and I spent some time on it, and I was like, after about now, I was like, okay, this is it. <laughs> Not for me. <laughs> Probably, like, I already waste enough time with yeah, yeah. YouTube, Instagram, whatever. Yeah, dude. Um, I, I don't I actually... need another vice in my life like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I actually deleted Instagram and Facebook. Well, I blocked it from my from my phone. And I recently just unblocked it because I was doing this stupid thing of you. I was spending the same amount of time on, you know, Instagram, for example, but just on the web version, which is shittier. So I'm like, why? Why would you, just might as well just unblock Instagram and use use the the, the actual app? Um, but yeah, I've, I, my it, it like blocking those apps has definitely reduced the amount of time I spend on it because before I might like spend you know a few hours on it, and now it's like. 30 minutes and then I'm like what the fuck this is boring I'm just going somewhere else yeah um, to be honest I have, I have a single similar thing now or especially if I'm studying I have like this thing on my laptop where you can block different different pages mm. and I just do that because it just helps me focus because even like some retarded stuff I had like wow my brother's also a big culprit of it we just play like these like three minute quick chess games Oh, all the time, like, and then you play one, and then two, and then three, and all of a sudden you're playing. Are you good at chess? Chess for 40 minutes. I'm, I'm right. I'm not the the greatest. Right. Uh, like, a, we should play a game. Um, we should play a game. I but mean, I'm, I, I, do you I, know your Elo score? No, I'm like, what the ranking you mean, right? So the yeah. So or do do you play on chess.com or what's chess, your the the app chess chess.com? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think I'm like one thousand four hundred on it. And then know. we probably can't play. Why? Mine is like nine hundred. Oh, I mean, we can still play. It's just statistics would say that you <laughs> would be me, <laughs> but quite like, handedly. Yeah, but but like I'm that's what the, I I play like games that don't essentially don't have a time limit. If you put time limit on me, bro, I'm like a 200. I sh- I'm literally the shittiest player ever if you put time limit because there's, there's just too much pressure and I'm just like, oh, what should I do? I'll just move this. And then I'm just like, I didn't consider, you know, all the movements. I feel like that's actually a thing which uh, hurts my chess development or my chess ability is that I ex- exclusively just because I get frustrated if I play in like these 10 minute each matches. Right. Um. If they if they take too long and mostly I do it in between study breaks when I play, and because of that, yeah, essentially I have like a fixed set of moves I just go through constantly, okay. and then I start thinking afterwards. But it just it limits your development in terms of different openings you choose because you're yeah. just sort of stuck in your ways and have fixed objectives. For example, when I play in these three-minute matches. Most my initial advancement is I always start with the queen 
ahead and then just try to get one um how they call next to the next to the horse the the what do you mean so you have the different obviously the different players yeah you the have pawns yeah you have the pawns then you have the i actually don't know how they call the, the ones which go diagonally oh the bishop the bishop so bishop yeah yeah. yeah. So essentially, my my goal is to have the bishop on one side uh, oh, out, the, yeah, and then yeah. to essentially attack the queen and the um, ones which can go only straight and left. Or... The the rook. It's called well the, the castle, but the the, the rook. Yeah, uh, the castle essentially. Yeah. And have the um, horse attack the the king or the queen and the, and the rook, yeah, the yeah, rook yeah, at yeah. the same time. Yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. sort of. For at least for the opening parts, that's pretty much most most like my main objective. And if I get that, then it's good. Then I pretty much uh, not game as one, but yeah. you can go from there. And then otherwise, if it doesn't work out, then I start thinking actually, okay, what's, what's going what on? should we do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the way I used to open it was like um, very simple opening is the the four move checkmate. So you you have the the queen, the bishop attacking the same area on like the corner of the of the king. And I used to open like that, but then it's so easy to block. So I was just like, every, and you know, pretty much there's so many moves which, which you can do to just block that. So once they block it, I'm like, okay, now what should I do? So those were, that, that was like my my initial opening. And then after I, was, I needed time to kind of think. Um, so if you give me like a 10 minutes thing or something like that, I'll just be like, bro, I'm just going to, I'm going to fuck up. Like for sure. <laughs> I'm gonna fuck up for sure. I'll spend the whole ten minutes thinking about one move. It's, just, enough, it's, it's so dumb. Yeah, one thing I just noticed is probably if you're discussing chess tactics, I'd probably best to learn the actual um, names of the chess uh, characters in English <laughs> before we get going. But yeah, that's but that's also similar to me. Like the the tactics I employ, they work for a certain level. Yeah. And then afterwards, I have to adjust and think myself. And I actually, I'm I think I'm probably quite decent in intuitively finding different spots right but my i feel like large part strategy game is not as as developed as it as it could or should i mean you you have to start somewhere right and then eventually you can reach like the the friend of mine from from warwick who used to who was in my course he did math and physics as well and he was the smartest person in class like i think uh you might have met him i don't even remember is um it's a guy who is um, he was the smartest person, but he was a very good chess player. Like, very, very good. His his ranking was like 2,400 or something like that. Like, I think 2,500 is Grandmaster. So yeah. he was very close to that. And I remember playing with him two games. I played with, I, like, literally just two games. I didn't know that he was that good, right? I know he was, like, part of the chess society and all that, but I didn't know that he was, like, very, very good. Or maybe I'm just shit at, you know, chess. And we played two games. The first one, he beat me in, I think it was 40 seconds. Literally 40 seconds, he beat the shit out of me. And I was like, no way. There's no way I'm losing like this. We played another game. And I think in like a minute, two minutes, something like that, he beat me again. And I'm like, you know what? You're just too good. There's no way I'm playing against you. I remember seeing him play against another friend of mine who's also in the chess society. And... He literally played, like, say you and I are playing, right? Yeah. Say I am that really good chess player and we're playing together. We play on the phone, but only you would have the phone. So you would tell me, like, um, 
I don't know, Rook E5 or something like that. And he would he imagine, yeah, he can imagine it and just be like, okay, uh, Queen D6. I don't know. And then he would move the 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 the, the piece for him. So the whole game he was playing like that, and he did it literally in front of me. We were waiting for the lecture, and do he still won. And I was like, the fuck is going on in here? Yeah, I mean, and that that type of that type of skill and comprehension, just to try to mirror the board in your head and then execute the moves on top of it, just because you have to keep, I mean, it's eight, 16 pieces, or I mean, technically 32, but at least probably 15 pieces in your head at all times to. Yeah. Um, confine where to make your moves and how. Mm. I've it's absolutely mind blowing to me. Yeah, dude, it's these guys are amazing. Yeah. These guys are actually sick. But also one thing, I mean, actually my my I don't play as much chess as I used to play like six months ago. But I had like a um, a phase about two three months ago where I really started getting back getting back into poker. Poker. And there's also because I used to play a lot of poker. Oh, decent amount of poker like back in the days with friends hmm. um we used to play in lamb as well quite a few times yeah, yeah exactly exactly um but when i got into it I actually also um watched like a lot of um videos on poker theory and poker in itself like may essentially go through this huge transition over the past 10-15 years mm-hmm. where typically it used to be all focused on okay can I read the other person what's his hand and sort of very um, psychologically based you play the man you play the man essentially and now it's it's like this this huge switch happened with the population of online poker Uh and people playing just a lot more hands and getting a lot better and there's this whole crazy amount of theory on a game theory observable play where a lot of statistical um, analysis and all that. Crazy amount of statistic analysis, when to play what hand, when to raise um, different boundaries. <sighs> and instead of um, what like normal people would look at, you have like the, the board or the flop, yeah. turn river in front of you, and you think, okay, I have that kind of hand. Um, what's his hand? What do I think he has? Does he have me beat or not beat? It's like they look at it as in what kind of range an eye projecting. So like, I only have, let's say, a 7-2 offsuit, but the way I played it up to now, I can represent an ace-jack. Yeah, okay. And they look at what range, based on what would be game theory optimal, you could represent, and then what they could have for range of hands, and then whatever different probability analysis they make in the head in a matter of seconds. And it's... That's also quite quite interesting to me. Oh shit! But this is so. All this is like experience has built like like a play. You you build all of this like through experience, right? It's not like there's an algorithm that tells you. No, actually there is. So this also a big thing in the in the, at least also in the online poker community. Uh-huh. And there's like um, poker solvers, and that's what we call them, which basically calculate for you. And tell you the game theory optimal way to play. Okay. And they actually you can download them, but most of them are banned um, if you're trying to use them for online poker. And the the larger poker sites like PokerStars and whatnot do have quite strict limits on um, of software installed to prevent you from utilizing the poker solver. While you're playing um, PokerStars, right? Well, could you not open like that app in a different computer or something? Yeah, I think I think 
you can. I think part of the thing is it's um, it's best to have it integrated just for most online games. You don't have that long to decide. You have like 10 seconds, 20 seconds. Yeah. So then updating all the stuff and right yeah. it takes it takes a while it, it takes a while so it's it's most times it's best if you have it directly integrated mm. um but there are these solvers out there which basically tell you the game theory optimal way to play and a lot of people nowadays model their way of playing to get as close as possible to the um whatever the optimal game theory optimal play style is oh shit Oh shit, yeah. dude! There's algorithms for everything out there now. Of course, like, of course. There's algorithms for literally everything. Like, it's it's crazy. Like, there there, there are literally uh, models for like predicting. I don't know any anything you can imagine. Like, how happy you're gonna be in the next few days. Like, I don't know. I, these these programmers and all. I mean, I'm one of them, kind of, because I'm working in like data analysis and and all that, but the way they come up with these models and all is just so so interesting so so fascinating man and yeah well i mean if you just look at the 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 computing power um sort of things such as um google's um deep mind uh, has in terms of just uh, understanding on a natural basis without having sort of hard coded algorithms in place beforehand yeah but just on pure uh, machine learning goes you uh, as you go basis it's it's absolutely incredible. And also going back to chess, I mean, back in the day, the I think I can't remember when. I think it was Kasparov who lost um, the first to, guy to computer. To a computer. And that yeah. was about 20 years ago. I mean, by now hand, there's absolutely no way um, uh, chess play would be the would be a computer. Yeah. And even similarly, I mean, in in Go, I don't know if you know Chinese Go. Yeah, it's it's a Chinese game, right? It's a Chinese game and has about. Difficult. It's actually a really really interesting game. I played, played like a, I actually because I heard that was supposed to be so much harder than chess. Yeah. Um, I actually downloaded it once and played it for like a couple of weeks. How is it? Um, albeit on a smaller board, so you can different have different sizes. Okay. Of the board. And essentially, your, I guess your way of winning is on dominating the most part of the map, and you can you have um, dots you place down on squares on the field. Okay. And then if you completely encircle um, the point of the other player, okay, that gets taken out. So always your that you, part of the map gets taken out, or does that part of that now belong to you? No, the the dots gets taken out. Okay. And essentially, you you control all part of the map, which you basically have cut off from the other person. Oh, oh shit! So it's actually it's it's quite a fascinating game. I again, I'm probably the most trash player out there who's played it um but, but it's quite interesting yeah. it's quite funny to play there is an algorithm so, now to to exactly and there is there is nowadays um and has i think I don't know, hundreds of times or a thousand times the the amount of possibilities uh chess has yeah which is already ludicrous amount of possibilities and it even five six years ago it was thought to be impossible for uh algorithm to beat the best professional Go players and I think that happened about two years ago and now it's they beat them handily yeah it's 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 crazy man it's crazy I think DeepMind was the one that developed this algorithm because now the way they develop algorithm is not like they don't they don't even train it 
sometimes with uh, training data. Like there's one that Google developed, I think it was Google, I think it was DeepMind, um, where they essentially just inbuilt like the high, this is what this is what I think it is. It's like the high level code, the high level kind of the abstracted rules, but then it just throws the algorithm in to a specific problem and it kind of learns automatically without needing like training data, for example. Yep. So with some in some cases you need like, you know, this is what ha what's happened previously using this data, try and predict what's happening in the future. But this is like, nah, we just, this is like, we, all we're going to do is feed you some general abstracted rules and you try and figure out, you know, what is the training data, how to, how to predict it, you know, based on your own, on your own way. And I think they, they made this algorithm and they threw it into different types of problems and it performed like an average human. So I think it was like around 54% compared to like humans. So it was a very, very successful um, piece of code. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, to be fair, with all this stuff like Google does with DeepMind, I always find it quite interesting. Um, just because, I mean, Google, I think they still do about 98% of their revenues with um, advertising. So through the, the main Google platform itself, yeah, um, they generate. But they all have these incredible moonshot projects they reinvest mm -hmm. and to be fair for the most part as of now haven't really taken off that yet to that great extent yeah i mean if you take um deep mind i think billions went into it and it's it's a great thing for common goods and com uh, common world and has um been able to solve some really interesting problems mm -hmm. um humans have faced but in terms of com commercialization scale hasn't really plan out yet as, yeah. it, as it should have also I think Google had a different plans where they were um, going to launch um, Wi-Fi with uh, um, air balloons in different places right right or, so have like a global Wi-Fi is it similar to like the Starlink project that type yeah, yeah for example for example or they also had um, their uh, how's it called um, their autonomous driving startup they now um, not have it in-house anymore, it's called Waymo, yeah. um, which is now spun out as its own company. And I think it has about, I, I think, 10 billion um, it already costed in um, development. So, since the beginning of Waymo. Since, since the, beginning the beginning of, of Waymo. And I think even, don't don't name it down the number, but uh, billions on billions have been spent on the project, yeah? Oh, sure. And to develop level four, level five autonomous driving. And... It's still nowhere close to commercialization yet. And yeah. it's just find it personally quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're reinvesting in quite a quite a lot of uh, projects. They're into cloud computing now as well. They're not that big compared to like Amazon because Amazon has like, like AWS has like what? 60%, 70% of the market. And then yep. it's Azure with another 15, 20%. And then the remaining is split between, you know, Google, the Alibabas, the IBMs and all that. But to be honest, I mean, that at least is a quite profitable um, part of the market. Yeah, Just... but it's not profitable yet for Google, I think. Ah, I think, probably, I think so. It is? Yeah. Just because, I mean, um, AWS, for example, is Amazon wouldn't be making any cash flow or any profits except oh, AWS. Yeah. For the past 10 years, I, uh, AWS has been subsidizing Amazon's expansion <laughs> into different markets. Yeah, and for sure. It, it's quite interesting principle because like the, the the data centers they have such high startup costs but i mean once they're established they have um very little 
marginal costs. Yeah, like operating well, costs, Running costs, right? so it's huge, huge fixed costs, but very low mar- uh, operating costs. So once you have all the infrastructure in place, it's it's hugely profitable and it, it um, helps Amazon greatly. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. I mean, I think, what was it? I think Amazon, if it, like rough numbers would be like, if they made like 50 billion in like net like profit, 25 of it came from AWS. Um, and the other 25 came from the rest of the of the business. Whereas if you look at the revenue, it was like the revenue of AWS was 50 billion. So like 25, sorry, 50% mar, like profit margin. But the revenue of the other side of the business was like 250 billion, 300 billion. So like ridiculously low, low well, very low profit margins compared to AWS. So I think Amazon, they should probably just like invest more into AWS, right? Yeah, seems to be more profitable. I mean, just just to very quickly go back on the to go back on the autonomous driving part. Yeah. Uh, I once read like a really oh, quite interesting article on mm-hmm. the on the FT. Um, I know how how you're much into the like aut- path to autonomous driving. Okay. But yeah. essentially, there's quite interesting development or like stances different car companies or software companies take to get a level four, level five autonomous driving, which is like the fully self-driving cars without any interference. And because um, you have essentially have like these different levels, like yeah. level one would be um, your lane switch assistant. Then I think level two is your, um, what Tesla has currently or had until now, um, where it's, you can take the hands off but in certain situations, you still have to intervene. Mm-hmm. Level three is where you can completely, for certain parts, take your hand off. And then I think, or oh, level four, I think you can, uh, in also, uh, I think in the cities and stuff like that, don't do anything. Level five is through all terrains. Yeah. And they're, they're two different approaches, essentially. You have one time the um, traditional car suppliers, so like your Bosch, or even like car companies like Tesla, which essentially build it from the ground up, or Mercedes, where you go to level one, level two, level three. Okay. And then you have your Waymos, your Uber, who essentially try to start at level four, level five. They're completely autonomous. Completely autonomous, and there are different viewpoints on it. So about four, five years, or four years ago, it was seen that there's no way that you can go, you can scale up from level one, two, three, to level four and five, just because the data requirements and the whole setup is completely different. Like one guy described it, uh, um, you're jumping high and higher, but level four, level five would be trying to fly. Right. And you can't really do that. Yeah. However, the the issue is currently that, um, I mean, um, take Mercedes, for example, or um, Tesla, they make, they get loads of, from all the millions of cars they sell, they get loads of um, loads of data, real life data, street data, yeah. which they can feed back into the algorithm into the to model, help improve yeah. it, while also making considerable considerable money on it. Because, mm-hmm. for example, the software upgrades Tesla for the full autonomous driving, so that, which is I think level three now, they cost about ten thousand, and there's zero virtual no marginal costs for, for Tesla to just update the software on. Yeah, they just click, cars. like, it's release. One click, and that's it. It doesn't cost them anything. While Waymo and all these other car, car startups, they they essentially um, have to pay engineers about 130000 to drive those cars around in some tests 
areas in San Francisco. Yeah, but yeah, but they don't have the licensing and registration yet. That's true. That's true. So it's a lot. But so it would be a lot more costly to go to level four and level five directly in that case, right? Because you need to, like you said, you need to pay all these engineers and all that to kind of test test it out. But then, um, so w for the level threes and then and the level twos and the, le the level ones, um, you're saying that it's easier in terms of it's it's easier to to go. Or it's it's more profitable to uh, to to do it that way just because you're making money at the same time as you're building. Yeah. Them. So initially, initially it was thought that it wouldn't be possible to gradually scale scale your way up, and it's sort of a waste of time if you want to reach autonomous driving to do all these other steps beforehand because they're not a precursor or they're not helping you in your quest to get to the next levels, so the the complete autonomous driving part. Right, but what, why is that exactly? Because, um, because the the starting point is different. It's it, they they know that there are a few differences. I think the main difference is that for um, the level four and level five, the amount of um, computations the computer has to make mm -hmm. and the um, sensor technology and everything has to be much more developed. So I think I can't remember what it is, but I think um, the the technique which is done, or the, the laser um, techniques which are done for level four and level five autonomous driving is like LIDAR or RIDAR, yeah, LIDAR, LIDAR. technology, yeah, yeah, yeah. which for example Tesla famously doesn't use. Um, yeah, they use cameras, right, instead. Yeah, and that, that is seen as, the LIDAR technology is seen as um, necessary to enable to make the computations. And that's why it was previously seen as um, just because the data is so much inferior with the just amount of cameras, amount of sensors you have in the previous um, levels, mm -hmm. they wouldn't really help you to get to this full autonomous driving state. Oh. But the thing is currently, and also currently also just gets a lot harder to raise money for really unprofitable projects. Um, yeah. Especially now for with them the to be rights. Exactly, it's for them to be spending billions and billions a year yeah. on trying to develop it to get to the point, while the others... Um, while it might not help as much, they want to have all this real-life data they can feed into and use for the next steps, uh -huh. while also making absurd amount of money in the process selling the already existing technology to the customers. Right. Right, yeah. I mean, no, now it's definitely becoming less feasible to kind of invest, like, billions and billions into a project. It's, that... it's I mean, the, 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 the change you had from the pandemic to now in terms of... Um, views of people on investing in in high growth startups in unprofitable companies has massively shifted i mean even if you look at all the tech stacks the nasdaq i think about 50 percent of them are currently all hyped <laughs> no no i mean the 50 uh, more than i think more than 50 percent of nasdaq companies fell more than 50 percent from their um, previous year high, so from the 52-week high. Oh, so they're the the 50% lower than their high. The yeah, I mean the the Nasdaq high. this month alone, I think, fell about 14%. So that was yeah. the worst month it had since the financial crisis. And if what you have to think about, if all the companies on the public markets fall and get a lot less lower valuations, um, it it has a downstream effect because a company, um, which is currently private, such as Waymo or um, such as I don't know even like 
all these like quick commerce delivery startups such as I don't know if you know Gorillas for example. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They they've raised absurd money money um, at very high valuations. So I think they raised a billion um, or even 1.5 billion at eight billion dollar valuation or whatnot. Yeah. And are currently burning at 50 million revenue per month. They're burning 50 million in cash. And if you if interest rates are super low, and the way you typically tend to value stocks is like it's or except like meme stocks and stuff like that, <laughs> you tend to value them at the um, discounted, or you, you add up all the cash flows you think the company will receive in the future, and then you discount, them, then you discount them. Yeah. And then if the interest rates are negative or zero, um, the discounts are not low. So you, mm-hmm. can, you can take a bet on, for example, Rivian, yeah. which um, hasn't produced a car yet, or maybe a few cars, and was valued at 100 billion. Right. However, if all of a sudden inflation is at 8% and interest rates are at 3%, um, you have different, very different considerations on, I don't want to earn revenue in 10 years, 8 years, or make profits in that amount of time. I need I profits wanted, now. Yeah, exactly. In a and year or two, max. That's, that's what's caused so many of the um, high-profile um, stocks or tech stocks from the pandemic or even generally just to absolutely falter over the past month. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Because those those discounts rates have essentially um, the 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 amount by which you discount it has increased, right? Because of the yeah. increase of the interest rate. And 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 then I mean, there are also other things. And then it's I think first of all it's that, and then also I think to to some extent trends which you saw with the pandemic. Okay. Um, with companies such as Zoom, where everyone uses it, or um, even like Netflix, which had a huge cyber growth during the during the pandemic but now that everything um, is open everyone is exactly, getting out of those you could, you and... could see you could see a shift that these trends do not really um start to occur mm-hmm. and then also at that time it was a lot different that people were thinking okay economy is opening back up again there's this huge pent-up demand actually savings were a lot higher through the pandemic just because of all the stimulus governments were made so it's like this huge demand we're going to come out roaring out of the pandemic but now since different supply chain crises, whether it's China, Russia war, um, have have caused such price increases. This has caused inflation to outspiral. And now people tend to come back, cut back on discretionary spending. So that's why, for example, a lot of people cancel their Netflix subscription because they're like, okay, they're actually seven... Um, Subscribe like there's seven uh, streaming services out there I can utilize, whether it's Hulu, Disney Plus, yeah. HBO, and they all have cheaper options and stuff like that. Why I, I don't need to have all three of them, right? Um, and then they cut back on some, and that has cost, for example, like Netflix to fall by like 65%. Right, so that's so I understand how you factor in interest rates into your calculations, but the way you you the way you just explained right now, that's how you factor in inflation, right? You just, you say the higher the inflation, the less people are going to spend. And then what are the companies that require, uh, that rely on people spending on them? Essentially, you just have a lower valuation for them. Is that is that right? Yes, yeah, so there, there are a couple of things. So I think, so uh, just some of the, the three trends I think we've seen currently is one time um, high, high inflation which is in turn leading to increases in, in interest rates because um, 
you want to cool down the economy essentially exactly right? i mean the interest rate the at the end are like cost of borrowing cost of borrowing money and um reward for lending money mm-hmm. so if interest rates are higher you have a high propensity to just keep your money on the bank earn interest and not take out more loans because you have high interest which leads to less stimulation in the economy and cools it down and yes yeah, so one time that would just that's the discount effect so mm-hmm. if just you have high discount rates then due to the general slowing that's like the second order effect slowing down in the economy and high inflation leads to uh, like in the uk it's like cost of living crisis for example people feeling in their pockets and people starting to see like the all the money they saved up during the pandemic mm-hmm. through like all different support schemes being run dry and then making less discretionary spending and then it's some companies can um, pass on these costs and actually and can stay steady during it but also when, a lot when of you say pass on these costs you mean pass it on to customers right just increase their prices yes yes but okay. um some of them aren't as price inelastic so if you can't raise prices into into oblivion and expect um, customers to say because for example i think netflix increased their their um streaming prices i think twice i think in the us by now it's like 16 17 dollars for okay. a subscription and it's uh, previously and it, was like nine or something like that right? exactly previously it used to be nine and that's yeah that just causes people to to spend less and and then also i think last part with the tech stock is the predication because none of them are making a lot of money now mm. like the if you look at the valuations of i think netflix before they fourth now to about 100 billion it was above 250 or even 300 billion and they i don't think they had particular any free cash flow and there you're expecting okay they're gonna make these huge um cash flows down the line okay but this is only predicated if they continue growing at a really high rate so yes impli- implied in the price of all these growth stocks is that they grow a lot yeah. And then if you have companies like such as Netflix, which all of a sudden has a subscriber fall, yeah. and all of a sudden, okay, it's stationary, and you, all of a sudden you met with a company which has um, a gigantic amount of content spent, um, they don't have as a differentiated product anymore because it used to be the appeal that Netflix, okay, you can watch movies without advertising and without having to wait for the next episode in a week. Yeah. But now since most of the or media is anyway con, um, consumed via um, yeah, consumed via the internet, via different stream services, via YouTube. There's so much competition you, out there. there there's well, so much yeah. more competition out there which really hurts the growth prospects of the company long term because it's just getting really crowded market with all the different companies going in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think dude, the stock of Netflix took a Big hit, like it went. What was it? it started off like six ninety five, and it went up to like two hundred, one ninety, one something. Yeah, I think it's this year actually, it's it's the worst performing company in the. But then again, like in the S and P five hundred. Like, wait, one question I wanted to ask you. You mentioned like Netflix is not generating any free cash flows yet. Yeah. What do you mean by generating free cash flows? Is do you think like Netflix is not profitable yet? Yeah. So the way the way, um. I thought Netflix was profitable already. Yes, it's different. So it's it, the way so profitability, 
is most measured by net income, okay. or net income percentage. Um, however, that doesn't necessarily mean that the when as an investor, you're most interested in the cash flows that the company is generating. Because even if the company is profitable, but let's say the company does a lot of um, investments into, um, for example, in factories or for Netflix, it's it would be content. Mm-hmm. Um, that is always that's a huge upfront cost. However, that isn't included in the income statement of a company, because in the it's it that's only on the on the cash flow statement of a company. Right. Right. So a company could be profitable but have a shitty ass cash flow. Yes, because for example, if you a company might be profitable, but they always have to um, the company the the money they're making they have to invest in new factories or new content all the time all the time they're not actually generating cash flow they could give out as a dividend or give out to investors right because okay. they always have to spend more and more of it on um, factories or content on, on or maintaining the company and like and growing the company yeah 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 that makes sense that makes sense so you can't like read this, even though you're making you know you're making money you're making profit that money has to be put into the come back into the company to kind of maintain it or, or you know grow grow it it can't be like given out um to like dividends or, or or you know stuff like that exactly exactly and then if you if you look at it for example i just i just looked at a um quite interesting post um from this guy called sean sean patch he's like this value investor uh-huh. uh, found on linkedin so netflix is worth um 30 bi- or makes revenue of 30 billion mm-hmm. so even with the stock being down i think now 50 percent or 65 percent over the over the past year um it's now valued at 99 billion so that's 3x times revenue and over the past year it generated um yeah, my, minus 27 million in free cash flow the four quarters, because oh, most of the profit they make, so the op, operating income, for example, six billion. Uh-huh. But however, that does not include investments into um, into into like uh, content in the kind of into content into factories into new production sites stuff like that, which then only gets um, capitalized over time. Yes. So that would be that would only show up in the income statement at a later point as depreciation. However, the upfront spend you have is not included in the income statement, and that's oh. why a company might be profitable. However, they're not generating any free cash flow as you have to reinvest money into the business. Oh, okay. So right now, Netflix cash flow is 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 negative. They have to constantly invest more money to kind of, in well, in the case of Netflix, produce more and more content, right, to stay competitive. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Oh shit! And and the thing is, for Netflix, um, the issue is, I mean, they have huge um, content spent over the past years. I mean, they so, have. Uh, I think they spent. Yeah, they spent 12 billion in 2019, and now they spent 17 billion in 2021. And I guess to some extent, the the thinking was for investors with Netflix is that they gathered this huge subscription base, and then you can they have a substantially lower cost of producing content per subscriber than other subscription services as you can then dish out one program you're making or one hit show you're making to 
I think whatever Netflix subscriber count is 200 it's million 200 subscribers. Million, yeah. Then about 20 million for other stream services, which substantially lowers your costs. Mm. However, the trap Netflix is in now, um, due to the fact that there is so, such high competition, they're in constant need of to spend more and more on content just to keep the the subscribers yeah. engaged. As I don't know if you have it. I mean, I personally I don't spend that much time on Netflix, so I don't have it. But I, I know a lot of my friends who have the thing that they're like, oh, nothing's there on Netflix anymore. Can I watch everything? Yeah. There's nothing new. And you, so you constantly, it's like a a consistent machine you have to feed. To be fair, Netflix, there's not many new things over there. Like, um, it's not that great um, anymore. And the thing with Netflix is like the content, not most of the content is not rewatchable. Like you wouldn't watch the same show again and again and again and again unless it's like you know, you could watch Friends again and again, yeah. But like most of the stuff is not rewatchable. They're mostly like documentaries and stuff like that. You know, you watch them once, you cool. But for example, Disney Plus. Dude, you can watch a Marvel movie like a billion times. You would still be, you know, you would still enjoy it. You could watch like kids, for example, can watch like a Disney, like a cartoon show or something like that. They will still enjoy it. So like, I definitely agree. I mean, also one thing is I feel like Netflix had a, def- uh, a definitive shift in their production outline. So I mean, when Netflix came up, mm-hmm. um, their sort of appeal was they do really, really high quality shows. Um, in-house produced, whether it's a uh, Ozark or it's a um, House of Cards, which mm-hmm. I think was their first really big hit show. And now I think you you saw the shift to a lot more casual content because I don't know how many like stupid if it's dating shows or competition shows they are yeah. on Netflix or like your cartoon series, which just have a lot lower cost of production than your really high quality shows. Mm-hmm. And I know if it's the right way to go about it, as it's sort of, I think it's to some extent, obviously it helps to make products which uh, appeal to the widest audience possible. So like stupid dating shows, they're not costly to produce and it's a quick watch for everyone. Yeah. But it sort of diminishes the, the, the brand quality yeah, Netflix has to some extent. Although, I mean, last year they did move quite a bit into movies. I don't know. It was at some point last year where they had like coming out of the pandemic. I think they did the the Irishman, okay. and then some other movies with The Rock and yeah, like, was, these all these really high. I think it was, big, there was there was one with The Rock and Red Ryan Nose Reynolds. Is, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's the one. Um. Also. If we, yeah, what? Right, just have to go to the bathroom. Oh yeah. Sorry. Right, we're back. We're back, right? Yeah. Um, for all of you that don't know what happened, it was uh, time for a PP break. Essentially. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> it was very much needed. Um, yeah. but yeah, I think we were discussing this uh, whilst on the break as well. You were mentioning that there was something else to do with the with the cash flows. Yes. Yeah, so essentially, I mean, essentially, you typically um calculate the free or the, the cash of a company is you take the the, the operating profit the company makes uh-huh. um which would be the ebit a- ebitda right e- ebit so ebit e- ebit is just the ebitda in- ex- including any hits from depreciation so okay. t- and depreciation is typically calculated you have all these buildings and cars and whatnot yeah and you 
it's like a counting thing. They have a typical usefulness lifetime. Yeah. And then you take off if it's the building is used or the car is used for 10 years, you take off 10% of the car each year. Well, there are different models, right? You can use a straight line. There are different ways you can exactly. discount. Exactly. You can use a straight line. You can use as a percentage of the previous balance. Okay. So it goes steeper and then sort of flattens out. Yeah. Um, it really depends. But so then the capital expenditures, so the, the, the investing part is one of it. And then you also have a thing which is called the networking capital. Which is net working capital. Net working capital. Okay. Which are basically your um, current a- operational current assets minus your operational current liabilities, which is essentially, um, for example, you are if you are a um, big fashion retailer, uh-huh. you typically have very high working capital because that's you have very high inventories, which you have to keep, and then obviously if you're expanding, you might be possible. But since you have to stock more and more inventory, if you go and expand to more and more shops, you have to hold this inventory and then your profits are sort of stuck in the inventory. And yeah. if you keep on growing, okay. um, it's, it doesn't allow you because you have to, it increases. But then, for example, for, uh, and this is why a lot of these subscription companies were highly valued by different investors. They typically tend to have quite negative networking capital. That if you grow, you actually get more cash flows out. And this is, it's like an interest free loan, you have to think of it. Because essentially, you do mobile phone contract for two years and you pay it up front. So right. it only gets recorded as revenue over the two years as you are using the mobile phone. Uh-huh. Because this is how like revenue recognition works. Right. However, since you paid up front for the two-year contract, the company has raised money, and then they don't have they can use that to expand cash yeah. cash flow they're getting to expand. So they don't have to use debt or anything, or they can give it out to um, investors and stuff like that. Right. But in the in accounting terms that revenue would not be booked as you know revenue for that year it will be split for that two for those two years yes yeah, right? so typically typically the way they the way it has um if you want to really go into accounting terms it's you record the cash on the balance sheet okay and then you have a deferred revenue liability deferred revenue but where, where would that that's go? A, that's the liability so those have to balance yeah, and then was... it gets and then as the revenue gets recorded you record it as revenue and then always take off the percentage of um, the liability which you have um, incurred over the time. Right. So say I'm paying like, I don't know, 200 pounds for the two years, right, for yeah. my phone contract. Um, I would record like 100 pounds in the first year. That would be in cash and there would be 100 pounds in that deferred revenue. After, yeah, after the first year, yeah. And then would be 100, you have the... Um, actually, you'd really have the 200 in cash, you would have the... Oh, yeah, yeah, 200 cash, 100 in revenue liability. And then the 100 in uh, revenue already recorded. Oh, okay, 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 okay. That makes yeah. sense. Okay. And that's that's essentially um, the way... Well, that's that's quite quite a good thing for a company to have mm-hmm. in terms of what you're looking for as, a, as an investor in a company is a company which is able to expand its operations without having to... Um, hugely expand its capital footprint, so that's why in general, take on too much debt and all that. Even, even, even not, even not debt, but I mean, um, what, what's it, capital it, footprint? 
the capital footprint, I just mean like have new factories and stuff like that. Um, right. To, oh, okay. To expand. Okay. Oh yeah. So like that's new why having a software yeah. product with minimal marginal costs and you don't have to expand your operations a whole bunch when you're growing okay. is is quite interesting because then you can just um, distribute it to more people yeah. without having to incur large amount of further costs right 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 because you can give the same product essentially to different to more people without you know investing more into it no okay okay oh, that makes sense which is why these tech companies are so attractive right like you said generally um, speaking yes that's 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 one thing because i mean if you look at companies such as i know crowdsite uh, cloudfare um docusign all sorts of um tech companies which are mostly on like a subscription basis so they're called subscription as a service companies SaaS companies yeah um what they tend to have they tend to have absolutely high gross margins as the um gross margins just revenue minus, minus the cost of goods sold yeah which is um, pretty much which negligible. is they and they they tend to have so 90 percent gross margins okay so the only really high costs they have is in terms of customer acquisition costs mm. so it's typically quite hard for them to, they spend a lot on acquiring new customers in the hopes that once the customers are locked in or attempts to be with a lot of the SaaS companies, once you use Slack, once you use DocuSign, once you use uh, CrowdStrike for security, um, you stick with them because they tend to have fairly high switching costs to switch from another provider. Yeah. Your whole company is using them, which gives you very much predictable revenue flows, which is also like one thing investors really like as it's different uh, um, it's a lot easier to continuously pay a small amount for subscription every year every month than if you buy a license and you pay like this huge upfront fee then you have it and then it's like what typically tends to happen you would um, push the decision making process further out of what happens in, in corporate decision making because you're not sure if you want the next upgrade while with subscription as a service companies, since you're locked in continuously, yeah, you just tend on keep on paying. Right, right. And I, I didn't get that license bit. So why why would that not be beneficial? Because then you because then you have to once that license expires, you have to pay a large upfront fee again. Or yeah, it it just it just tends to happen that companies if you if you sell it as a license. The 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 the, ch- the churn rate, so the likelihood that a customer comes back mm-hmm. um, after your one license expires, isn't isn't as high as with a subscription. Service. Oh, okay, okay. So this way, if you have it as a subscription, you, you can see it as, let's say, if you have your Google Cloud subscription or whatever, and you pay two euros each month or five euros or whatnot and you're you're happy you have all your documents on there you're good or you pay one time 200 euros yeah and then but then if it gets to the next decision making process you're like okay do i really want to upgrade to the next product yeah will i make it or are there other ones out there am i good with the old one yeah and it's also not a certain when so a company might do it but you don't have the assurance that they do it this year, next year, every year. Right. So there's there a lot more heavy swings in your in your revenue um, stream. Right. And, that's, and that just typically makes makes planning hard for companies because if you know how much money you're gonna make next quarter, you can invest a lot more aggressively 
you can um you can you can make your predictions a lot more accurate right because you know how much is coming exactly, in so, exactly. Like, okay, so, cool. so you've used the um probability of financial distress right and it has all those additional benefits you you wouldn't get from um a licensed product uh, like a big license right so it's more of a psychological is that is that dash okay um i mean i'll just cut this out yeah sorry for the second interruption but um Chris's girlfriend just just arrived. Um, so unfortunately, we don't have a third mic yet. I am trying to get it, um, but she will be sitting over here and joining in the conversation at times um, as well. But yeah, what were we talking about before? Um, we were, I think we're talking about um, valuing companies or yeah. like um, yeah, why why certain aspects of a company are good or not. Yeah, and like how to how to value them in general. Yeah, is is this essentially what you do for your job then, pretty much? Each sort of. So I I don't. I mean, um, so I'm I'm starting to work for P Fund this summer, uh-huh. and so they don't typically deal with um very high growth uh, growth companies. So while they are tech focused, they look more at more stabilized niche players okay. in the market and. Since it's, as the name implies, private, so you only deal with um, private companies, so not companies which are on the public markets. Okay. Um, but it, it generally the analysis part is 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 fairly similar. So I, I think what you would typically look at as a P investor, they're like a handful of characteristics um, you look for in a company. Um, one is definitely um, stable and long-term growth in the industry, and then. Also, just dominating on uh, in a niche market and dominating position in the industry itself, um, with mostly things like high barriers to entry, um, a good product, strong management team, as well as um, good cash flows. So they don't have things um, where you have to have like very high capital expenditures or very high networking capital. That basically all the investment you make into or into the when growing the company you have to reinvest in the company itself with the example for example yeah, we got the before, inventory. Yeah. Um, so these I would say are probably the the biggest things investor looks at or a private equity investor looks at and this this is primarily because when a PE firm buys a company they tend to do it with a lot of um, debt. Um, so wait, am I right? Is that like a leveraged um, buyer? Exactly, exactly, exactly. So um, what I know PE my shit. I know my shit. Exactly. So what, <laughs> what a PE firm does, they do LBOs. Okay. So what you do is um, you uh, identify targets. LBOs then, being leverage, buyout, was a buyout. Oh, buyout. Okay. CEO. Oh, fair enough. And yes, yeah, so essentially you buy you buy the company with leverage, and that's just because um, it helps essentially to on one side juice the, juice the returns because you have to invest less capital up front while um, earning all the cash flows from the company as you're the ultimate holder. And and that's the exact reason why you look for companies which have um, strong barriers to entry, really niche markets, um, and um, strong long-term growth rates, as you want to essentially put as much leverage on it as possible while comfortably being able to pay back the loan so you don't want to be like in a really cyclical up and down industry okay. where in two years due to outside factors or, or change in like fashion trends for example and your company 
um, revenue drops by 34%. That'd be disastrous. Yeah. As at that point, um, as a PE company, what you try to do is so you you level the company with with debt. Yeah. And with the cash flows the company generates, you one side you pay back, uh, you you pay the interest on the loans, and then you also pay back part of the part of the loans. Yeah. So if, let's say with some money remaining at the end, obviously, ideally. You know, so ideally how it works is the typical ownership period of a PE um, is around five years. So you enter it and or you, you buy the company initially. You have about anywhere between three to seven X leverage. That's like character on the multiple of EBITDA as a proxy for the free cash flow the company okay. makes. So you just enough so that the company can handle it paying off the interest with the cash flow it generates. Okay. And then you aim to make operational changes to the company or grow it via some add-on acquisitions or stuff like that. And during that time as you grow the company, you generate cash flows, you pay off part of the loan. Most times you you still have um, some debt remaining. Okay. Or if you it's that profitable that you already paid off all the debt, what you could do is like a recapitalization of the div, dividend recap where you take out where you, you put more debt on the company and just pay the debt you just the cash you received out as uh, dividends to oh. yourself oh okay um just uh, this one one other way of sort of juicing the returns right right and essentially oh and over that time since Debt is typically cheaper form of, of, of financing than equity. You pay, I don't know, anywhere from three to ten percent interest on different loan tranches. That's, but, I mean, isn't that pretty high? To be fair, like it it depends. So typically, in a in a in a LBO, you have different tranches. So um, the main bulk of it coming from bank debt, and that's. Um, Pretty. That's pretty low. I think that can be around 3.5%. It mostly is orientated on the LIBOR, so like the central set interest rates by the by the um, uh, central banks. Yeah. And then a certain all, yeah. spread the bank makes. But these tend to be fairly low. But banks tend to be a bit more conservative in their in their risk assessment. So they most of the times won't lend you all the money. So then you would look to um, some private lenders or get some other forms of financing which are more, more costly, expensive, yeah. more costly. However, most times have few restrictions. So that um, lets you lets you um, gather company. But I mean, if you look at, so the typical um, P investor looks to make 3x over five years, which is about 25% IR. Okay. Um, so even then, five percent. Explain if you... for the people out there. Explain what what IR. So IR is the internal rate of return, okay. which is basically just the discount rate, which would make your um, return go to zero. So if you and the three X is just if I buy a company for one billion, yeah, and I have uh, three hundred in equity, yeah, I put in the transaction. And I sell the company for 1.5 billion, and I have 600 debt remaining. That's 900 million equity. I put in 300. 
that's a 3x over the time period. Yeah. And if you would discount the 900 million you made by 1.25 yeah. to the power of 5, yeah. you would go back to the 300. So that's just if you would invest the 300 each year at a 25% at a rate, yeah. this, would, this would generate the 900 million. This is the way you, you calculate the IR. Right, right. Yeah. And yeah, so essentially you, and it's, it's just a lot cheaper for the company itself or, or it's cheaper for the investor, the private equity owner to only put in 300 equity in the end, in the, in the beginning and then have the, the debt finance parts of it. For the rest of it, yeah. Um, rather, than to, rather than to have to commit, if you commit the whole billion and then you sell it for 1.5 five and you made because you paid off in my example you paid off 300 million in debt so from 900 to 600 you went down uh-huh. which would make it 1.8 your return would only be 1.8 x wait i got lost there okay um, i can i can i can explain i used bits weird numbers yeah so essentially i, I was going to ask you as well because you mentioned that uh you financing by, by debt is cheaper than financing by equity and why why is that i would always think like well, not, not not always, but like surely it's less risk. Well, it's less risky in that sense to use um, your equity, right? Because um, then if you if you if the project goes bad, then you 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 have to pay this interest and this loan, and you know you don't yeah. have that money to do it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so the reasons why um, raising money by by debt is, or finds by debt than equity is cheaper is twofold. So first of all. Um, with debt, you have a lot more security than with um, equity, um, because in the case of bankruptcy or if the company gets liquidated, um, debt holders have preference over equity holders with regards to the liquidation. Mm-hmm. So if yeah, a company goes bankrupt and they're only 50% of the whatever company gets salvaged, debt holders tend to take up all that value. Yeah, and the way the different interest r- interest rates get yeah. determined is also the more junior the debt is, um, the higher the return because because obviously you have to compensate for the you you always it's it's the financial markets are a game of like risk compensation yeah and the higher level risk is as a junior debt holder, the higher the return you want because if you're you have you have the most senior bank debt mm-hmm. so uh, senior debt you always in nearly all cases will get your money back yeah no matter what happens to the company so it's However, risk, if you're an yeah. equity holder if the company gets liquidated and you only get paid after all the debt holders get paid so you might not get anything in terms of a um in terms of a li- in a liquidation scenario right. so therefore equity holders are compensated for the risks they're taking on being junior to the debt holders right and that's why it's more expensive to finance right right but this is for the person like in terms of like return right yeah this is we are looking at it from the point of view as the person lending the debt what i was trying to understand is like i say i am the p firm right and i have um oh i think i think i know where you're coming from yeah so why would i that one billion for example why would i use debt get get like 300 of my equity and 600 with debt sorry 700 with debt instead of just putting the one billion up front um, 
it's essential because you can buy if I let's say I have one billion in cash. Yeah. I can either buy a company for one billion, use all my cash, or I can use debt and then buy a company oh, for buy three, three billion. Or four. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. if you grow the company by ten percent a year, uh, on the three billion, it's a a lot higher value than if you if I would buy all cash. I I can use the probably the simplest way to describe it is by using the example of buying a house and then trying to rent it out. If you buy a house, you typically have to provide a 10-20% down payment on the house. Mm-hmm. So the house costs 100,000, you have to commit 10-20,000 into the house, but you live in the house or you have a asset now which is worth 100,000. That means if you rent out the house, you can get rent on the whole house worth 100,000. If I would only buy the house all cash with my 20,000, I'd have a house with 20,000 and then I get rent on a house with 20,000, which is the rent's likely going to be a fifth of the house I get with um, 100,000. Yes. Therefore, therefore, it just helps you to get more. And this is the, I mean, the rent you can see is cash flow coming in. Right. So the cash flow you receive from an asset which is worth a hundred thousand, or let's say a million, compared to an asset worth, which is worth two hundred thousand, yeah, is greatly different. It's like yeah, yeah one yeah. time you you get a thousand rent a month, the other one you might get three thousand rent a month. Right, but the, uh, for the for the f- when you're using debt, for example, to finance, you have to factor in the interest payment and all that as well, right? So say for example, if it's a three. T- like you said, three to ten percent. I think you mentioned before is the average, right? Yeah. Um, you have to make sure that the return you're getting on on that is definitely higher, like twenty percent at least, or something like that, right? To compensate for that interest and yeah, I mean, and this also, I mean, especially in a low interest environment, this typically good for PEs as they just have to pay less interest on the debt. Yeah, they have, and and I mean, but in in most cases, um, the the primary debt often taking, unless it's like very risky buyouts where banks are uncomfortable in um, taking part in, it, it tends to be that the the bank debt is, um, first of all, it's most times collateralized with different assets in the company, uh, which helps to push down the interest. And then you typically do expect to make uh, a lot higher return than the, the 3% you have to pay or 5% you have to pay each year on the right. bank debt as you aiming to make 15 or 20% a year in return in the end. Right, 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 right. And what happens, well, I guess I think I pretty much know the answer for this, but what happens if the project or the company or whatever that you're trying to invest in um, sucks and doesn't go according to plan and something happens? Yeah, I mean, that's always a tough situation. Um, most times what you would do as a PE is you try to find different ways to... Uh, whether it's cost-optimized company, closing unprofitable branches, um, or if it gets really bad, you most times would want to um, restructure the debt. As you can you can make an argument, or in, in, in some cases, that if the, the company is worth more on an operating basis, then if it gets liquidated in a fire sale. Because if it actually gets to the point where the company goes bankrupt and it gets liquidated, um, you're not going to get the same money out the company as if it would be sold in a regular process. 
So then what you would do is you would enter in negotiations with the debt holders and let's say be like, hey guys, okay, you guys, if if everything gets liquidated, you guys will only receive um, 10% uh, in the or 60% of the of your of your outstanding payments. Mm-hmm. However, if we um, restructure debt and you guys let go of 20%, you guys will be able to um, you guys will be able to eventually get eventually get the full money back. So that's what to be called the the haircut banks would make or debt holders would make oh. in the restructuring case. Right, so the, they'll be like, right, you, we could either sell everything and give you 60% of what we owe you, or you could just f- forgive us 20% and we'll give you the remaining 80% eventually once the business picks up. Exactly, exactly. So this this is a conversation you, you'd you have with, with different debt holders as in most cases, as soon as the company is in severe financial distress, it has huge devastating effects on general company as for example um, other companies your customers would not or might not want to even buy the product anymore because let's say if a company is micro bankrupt you're like okay if the if the product has five-year guarantee what is our actually the chances that i will be able to um, have the guarantee um, made or if there's any maintenance work needs to be done on a machine or product Okay. If the company is in risk of going bankrupt, you're like, okay, I don't want to buy from a company where I have a maintenance issue with my product. The company might not be able to do anything for me because they might be bankrupt two years. So right. it's like financial distress has huge negative impact on company. And that's also sort of fallacy people get into that they say, okay, once they understand, like, okay, debt is cheaper than equity that's like one thing you learn in like the foundation of finance course right okay let's just level up everything 10 billion percent um up to the max <laughs> and it will just lead to high and high returns so it's always it's a careful calculation um you have to make in how much debt the company can sustainably hold over a long period of time right right because you can't obviously take as much debt as you want because you know um, eventually, you might not be able to pay it back. Yeah, exactly. And this this goes back to um, looking at uh, the the P decision making process and trying to find companies which are um, have high barriers to entries, have strong stable cash flows, that they aren't risk of of a suddenly, um, I don't know, due to outside factors or a change in trends, their revenue goes down, they all of a sudden make no cash flow. And then they have all these interest payments they have to pay and can't pay. Where then the process of financial distress starts, where you get in serious trouble and will lead to a very shitty investment. Right. And I guess here also uh, the importance of the skill level of the you know people working in the PE firm come into play, right? Because you want to make sure that they're experienced enough to try and identify, to make sure that you identify the right companies to invest in, right? And not just... You know, yeah, of course, of course, up. and I mean, and I mean, here's where uh, your skill level comes t- to comes to uh, test, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wouldn't predict in my skill level, but generally, if if <laughs> companies, team. yeah, if if a company gets, um, I mean, acquired, it isn't as easy as okay, we're just gonna um, level it up and that's gonna be it. Although there are 
different debates on how much value add PEs actually bring to the table. But the the main analysis part is you're typically trying to look for um, companies which you can structure improve or have new um, help expand into new areas, new product lines, and acquire maybe some other companies that they have like some other cross-selling opportunities you identified right. and structure reform because also you typically have to pay a premium if you want to acquire another company. Yeah. And so it's for public markets to be controlled premiums anywhere between like 30 and 50% okay. of the company. So you go in paying a lot more than what the public markets would see the company's worth. So you have to have some theory on how to structure improve the company to make sure you, you can't just say more than 50 we put some more depth on it and that's going to go you have yeah. to find some for example when um i was working at uh i was working at uh, one of the PEs, p funds i was working at we were for example looking at um uh, like these small dentistry uh, manufacturers of like um really specialized dental products and it's like a super niche business, mostly family-run Germany. And they're thinking, is okay, you can combine them to larger German chain. And um, if you buy them up individually, combine them, reduce like administrative administrative overhead, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, have them specialize in different product areas, so you can have a wider product so you can sell to your your customers. And this is sort of like the strategic value considerations which come into play when you um, do like decision-making processes. Right. Right. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes sense. So when you, when you're, wait, so, so PE firms generally they buy companies with the intention of just growing them within those five years on average, like you yep. said, and then they sell them to other PE firms or larger it, firms? It or? really depends. So it used to be that it used to be the case that um, nearly no P firm sold to another P firm, okay. as the the common thinking was, um, once a P firm or a quiet firm, they sort of uh, modernized, instituted good governments, um, cut out like all the really easy things in the in the value creation process, like organized all their re- reorganized their structure. And professionalized it. Yeah, professionalized. Um, however, that's the right word. Yeah. Yeah. However, um, what you've seen over the past years, as the the private markets in general have grown a considerable amount, like when you see the amount of funds raised nowadays, it used to be like that a, like for example, flagship fund from KKR like 20 years ago was like five billion. That's like one of the highest um, funds you would deploy money in. But now they're like. Um, 25, 30 billion, 35 billion. Hmm. So there's just a lot more money going into a private markets as interest rates have gone so low and private equity has shown to um, produce considerable returns. Yeah. A lot of like large asset managers and stuff like that, which have huge pension savings and stuff that have allocated more capital to private equity, which just have just led to a lot more money private equity companies have. So what you see now is that actually companies or P funds tend to a lot more than earlier tend to take over companies from other um, from other P private, funds. private equity funds or even in some cases, which is really interesting, 
they put them in so-called continuation funds, they essentially sell them to themselves. Because the issue is PE funds typically have to end after 10 years. It's just like in their structure in the statement, because you can't just keep like investing money forever. They're like if 10 years where the fund gets closed and all the money gets distributed to the to the shareholders to the shareholders of the, yeah. the fund. But what happens now is if the if the company is still promising, they seems like interesting, still growth opportunity, and they still see some value in further expanding the company. What sometimes happens, they just sell it on to the next fund. And okay. this just goes to show that back in the days, like the PE industry, used to be. They weren't that there was there wasn't that much competition, so it used to be that it, you could just acquire a company, professionalize it, cut costs. Like that's where the sort of evil image from PE comes from. Yeah, that's like they just cut costs, cut jobs, fire everyone, yeah. and sell it off. <laughs> like COVID Raider style. Yeah, but since it got so much more competitive, which has raised the prices, you now have to have um, quite deliberate value creation strategies in place in order to help your company grow and make the make the returns right right okay and then so how many funds does a p company roughly like tend to have i mean the, I, well I, I guess it depends on the size of the really PE really depends on the on the on the, on the size i mean the the funds i primarily worked for they were uh, mid cap funds so they they tended to have um one 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 fund, um, for example, Five Arrows now, where I work now, they, I think they have three or four different fund vehicles. So, so they have one main buyout fund, then they have like more of a growth fund where they invest in more upstart technology businesses. Then they have a private debt fund where they essentially use the money to lend to other companies. Okay. And that's also generally a trend you see in PE. A lot of PE companies only used to do PE. But now a lot of them cover a lot of different private markets um, vehicles. So they do, I know, private real estate, debt, infrastructure, um, buyouts. And that's just like to cater to different investor preferences and to help them out. Yeah. And to get more, get more assets under management, which is part of the money, like, which determines part of the money you make. Because typically, in a PE fund, you get 2% of all the management fees per year. So of all the money you've collected from investors, you yeah. get 2% a year, and then you get 20%, 20% of all profits. Yeah. Of the profits, yeah. Right. yeah. And this might be a dumb question, but who can invest in those funds? Is it just institution or so big it, it, companies? It or can I do it, be, for example? It typically tends to be... Um, so it's only accredited investors Okay. Um, who can invest in it. Um, you when you have, say accredited investor, is that an investor that has passed some sort of exam or something like yes, that? Yes, so they're, they're, they're different qualifications in different countries. Okay. Um, I think in the UK or in Germany, you have to have a certain income level to participate. Right. And then also have worked in the, in the finance industry um, for a certain number of years in order to qualify as an accredited investor. I think there are probably also some ways around it where you... Um, do different sort of tests to prove that your financial literature is just essentially just to protect investors from scams as one the one thing with PE funds and that's also why they have to get these kind of returns of 15-20% your money is often tied up for 
10 years. Yeah. So that's a good thing about, for example, investing in the S&P 500. You can pull out your money anytime you want. And you can pull out how much ever you need, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, in a PE fund, once you commit to it, um, there isn't any form. So, and to your question, so it used to be that only, it was very, very hard to invest, except sometimes if you work in the firm, you get carry after a certain point. Um, so that's, you participate in the investment as part of your salary and you receive part of the investment outcomes as um, returns. Right. Um, which and is one upside. It's like a different form of bonus you receive in private equity, which is quite nice. Right. And those returns are um, in the form of like dividends or once you sell the company? Uh, once once the com company or if they, unless there are any dividend recaps where I explained earlier yeah, you take yeah, yeah. out money out of the company. But usually is once you want to sell the company. Once you sell the company, exactly. Um, but there are now different providers. There's, for example, Moonfair. It's like a provider where um, you can invest, I think, with up as little as little as <laughs> 50,000 as 50, as 50, okay. into the PE fund. And I think the way they do it, um, they charge you an extra half percent on the 2%. So 2.5, okay. 2.5% or maybe even some some funds, um, 1%, so 2.5 or 3% instead of the typical 2%. And then you can invest for as little as 50,000 in funds from KKR, Carlyle, or whatever your big um, investors are. But this is right. very new recent developments. Right, but you, I mean, those PE um, well, those funds better make a decent return because, like me, say I'm investing in that, right? I have to pay two percent of that every year, then plus twenty percent on the profit as well, and then they better they better make a decent return for me because, like, if it's only making like ten percent, for example, I might as well just put in the S and P. No, exactly, and that's this part of the reason why um, most funds have the moniker to return. Uh, 3x will have like a 25 mm. or 20% IR target mm. because this typically gross of fees and then um, after discounting all the management fees you have and the um, the, the carry the the, the percent on profits the P fund receives um, to make enough profits to account for this illiquidity premium you have by keeping it with the fund the whole time instead of investing in the S&P Right, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And in terms of the whole process, I know you were explaining to me before, but like, how does? Because there, there are a lot of companies. Hey, don't worry, do do worry, one. <laughs> um, if you even if you make noise, it's fine. You can't really hear it. Um, so yeah, how does it work in terms of like acquiring a company? The whole process because there's like investment banks involved, there's PE firms, there's I don't yeah. know, like accounting firms, there's all due diligence and all that. So, yeah, so how, the, how does it work from start to end? Yeah, so, the, so they're, different, they're different processes and it, it typically tends to get a lot more institutionalized um, the bigger the company goes. So for example, one fund I was working at uh, called Avedon of last year, um, they were fairly small. So I think their, their current fund is about 550 million. Okay. Um, which is sort of on the lower lower mid cap end, and they would pride themselves a lot on on doing a lot of proprietary research, doing a lot of like industry studies and stuff like that, and through that identifying their targets. 
and then so and this is this the like the very much ideal scenario that okay. you identify a target um you find interesting you approach it without there being a large auction or process I'll come later to involved and you can just approach it one on one you try to convince it of your growth strategy you're like hey this really interesting company i think we can make you from a regional to a global player and typically what you would do is um as the p funds they don't operation you run the company so you most times you either put someone in place to run the company operationally or you have the people who are in the um heads of the firm at the current state continue to be the leaders of the company right and you mostly incentivize them with a percentage of the shares that they roll over right. so let's say a person owns 100% of the company you say okay you still earn or you still keep 20% so you still incentivized for the success yeah and we're going to grow it i don't know 3x in 5 years uh-huh and this way with the money you receive now and the uh, 3x on your percentage you still keep mm-hmm. in 5 years this is a 10 times better investment than if you would go on it alone by yourself yeah um, just what quick question uh, before we carry on so yeah. how what percentage of the company do pe firms tend usually um own is it like could it be 100 it really, it or 5 it, or it really depends um it depends if it's a if it's like a management buyout if it's um the company the owners just want to sell and get rid of it and you would bring in new ownership then it's maybe like you give them the new manager just 10% or if it's the you want to really keep the prior owner you want to sell it to the um give them like goodies to incentivize to keep longer right. then they can also have 30% um so it can be anywhere between 5 and even sometimes like 50% and but okay. tends to be like 10 20 30% which the management or the prior owners of company keeps and the p firm tends to be around 70 80 90% of ownership level right so p firms could be uh, they tend to be on average you said on 70 80 70 80 90 something like that okay and the rest is for the management management team management, to incentivize exactly stuff okay. like that but they nearly always or or pe they always take up the um unless it's some special deal they take up the majority of shares so th- that they have the controlling power in the yeah. in the company okay sorry um, i interrupt you what the but yes yeah, so generally on on the thing is it's it's quite hard as i said it's it's getting the the process is getting a lot more competitive so it's a lot of it's it's a lot harder to find proprietary companies and then also as companies get bigger um they're just fewer targets potentially available which would be interesting to right. p targets so then what typically happens is if if a company decides they want to sell um what they would do they would hire a sell side advisor um so bank mostly to lead the process for them like an investment bank yeah. investment bank so think of your jp morgan goldman sachs mm-hmm. um yeah jeffries whatever and so they would then be hired by the company they would then um gather intel on who potential targets would be um so ideally it's always better to sell to strategic just because they tend to high, pay higher premiums as they can have synergies with the existing company okay 
uh, wait, what? When you say sell strategic, what do you? A strategic, just uh, just regular company. Okay. So if it's, if it's 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 like let's say a producer of ice cream. Yeah. Your it's it's inherently it's for the the selling company it's better to be sold to like Nestle or bigger. Oh right. Um, bigger producer of um food. Yeah. Because they can have higher synergies with the existing company and leverage it better, and they more often than not willing to pay higher premiums. Right, right, that makes as sense. They they have a more strategic interest, outlet, yeah, interest, in, interest it. in it, yeah. And yeah, so you would you would gather the the intel on the companies. Um, and so what... l l let's use the example like you, like you give like of the ice cream firm. So say there's a random, there's a small ice cream producer. I don't know if that's the best example. But uh, let's maybe let's maybe say let's maybe let's maybe pick like a fuck let's say like some some HR software company. Okay, HR okay. software company. Um, so something like Workday or yeah, something uh, like Monday. Like, com. Exactly, like exactly. So um, they they make the decision to be sold. Um, they hire the investment bank. They make a list of different companies which would be interested. So some other um, larger HR companies or IT companies. Um, which would like to have it in the portfolio, mm -hmm. and then also different um, PE companies. So then, once you compile the list, you send out a teaser, which is mostly anonymous, six, seven, eight pages document outlining just the bare basic of the company, mostly anonymous. Hey, this is a um, domestic leader or German leader in. Um, HR software right. with strong client base, multinational client base, um, high recurring revenues and good margins with a bit of overview on the different operations, the financials and the company as a whole. Mm -hmm. So that would then send to the, the PEs. Then um, me as the P firm or the P firm would then look at the company, have an initial thing. <coughs> would this be interesting for us? Does this company look interesting for a fund and the transactions we would want to make in the future. If the answer is yes, you would then sign an NDA, mm -hmm. which basically ensures non uh, yeah, confidentiality, that nothing leaks. And um, that's especially important for like public transactions as there is something leaks has, can have effects on stock markets and, and you play extra, trading, yeah. all that stuff. And then afterwards you would have um, an investment, you would get an investment on random, which is then a um, more detailed sort of 30, 40, 50 page overview of the company with like really deep down on the different divisions, their management, their organizational structure, okay. their different products they have, um, customer feedback rating, growth rates, all stuff you can think about, Everything about the company. Which, you, which you would need to evaluate the company. Then you also have maybe some um, maybe like a different company presentation or calls with the management about it to, to ask some questions and have some interest. And during that time, you would also um, prepare different uh, slides and your overviews to the investment committees, which are typically yeah. at the PE firm, um, to decide whether to press forward with the transaction. If you had the first deep dive and made your first due diligence, your initial due diligence, on the market, the company, how recurring the revenues are, um, how stable the cash flows are, um, how 
r risky it is from legal perspective, all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. you would submit a LOI, a letter of intent, so like a non-binding bid for the company, okay. where you typically give a range, which what you would buy the company for. Mm -hmm. Then that typically gets accepted, then that narrows the field to a handful of players, yeah. which are in, and then the... Because obviously you're not the only PE firm for putting a bid. There's exactly, money, many exactly, other exactly. firms. And this one's non-binding, so at that point, um, it's, the risk would be too high if to only progress with one because yeah. they could pull out. Yeah. Um, so at that point, like the deep dive due diligence would start. And there you hire outside counsel. So you typically have four big documents which you get done, which like the commercial diligence, the financial diligence, the tax and legal form. Okay, and you hire different firms to do this. Exactly, where you hire different companies to do it, and there where you really have like an in-depth granular view, it's like 80 pages each, on the company's operations, legal risks, all the different contracts they have with suppliers. Right, so some, someone like KPMG or EY would be hired to kind of... Exactly, they would they would maybe do the the, the tax part yeah. or the um, commercial diligence part, and then, and then, then some McKinsey lawyer would office. do the strategy part, and then some lawyer office would look at the different contracts, whether in case of a transaction or acquisition of a different company, they would be able to void the contract or how locked in the revenues are and stuff like that. Yeah, so then once all that's done, in the meantime, you typically or previously would have set up a, a model. Um, to sort of value company and model different scenarios or do you think um, the company is worth based on your assumptions? Okay, and this would be like your personal model for that, P, for yes, that yes. particular so PE firm, typically, right? Typically, as a PE firm, you do your, you do your own model yeah. and then that over the time gets uh, consistently refined with the, with the data you receive from the different commercial diligence and the financial diligence and stuff like that. And then you do like more granular operating models where it's like really not only where they have like cost of goods sold and person expensive, but like really granular on a cost basis and different product basis. Right. Um, what the revenues are and the, the growth rates and stuff like that. Okay. And yeah, and then essentially, then you have the second round of, of bidding um, where you would submit and the, also, in the meantime, you have like stuff like company uh, site visits and stuff where we inspect the company, speak for to the management, stuff like that. And so then make sure everything is legit, essentially. Yeah. Right? And yeah. then you would have a second round bidding process, which where you give a fixed number, and then whoever bids the most there wins. Okay. But that one is anonymous, so you don't. It's not like you see at the cattle ranches where it's like yeah. 50, 100, 200, everyone <laughs> submits it anonymously. One company then gets exclusivity, and then you essentially work on different uh, integrating and some last due diligence points. Wait, one quick question about that um, highest bid being accepted because is it just about the highest number, or could it be other things involved? I mean, it, as it well? typically it typically is the highest number. Okay. They're different. They're different. Um, preferences um, where it's not always about the highest bid and that's also way PE firms try to distinguish themselves through the equity story or the growth story they're telling because if let's say one company is like hey okay we're going to buy this company for a billion 
we're going to strip down all the assets. We're going to sell your, um, whatever. It, if the HR company also has like a drop portal or whatnot, we're yeah. going to sell off the drop portal. We're going to cut this out and do this. The, 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 the current management or current shareholders might say, okay, we're actually more interested in more growth oriented outlook yeah. that we want to acquire two other Fra- French HR companies integrate them and yeah. this also goes to show with the, the rolling over the equity part rolling where we mentioned earlier that the, the management or the prior owners tend to take a certain percentage oh yes of the, so that's also a bit of their thinking on okay which company is going to be where is the company going to position five years uh, yeah. that's also going to generate some value okay so it's not it's not it typically is the highest bid but it isn't always the highest bid it's also a value creation other. considerations which go into play right okay so we have this these uh bids that have been submitted usually the highest one is picked then then what happens with that so now there is a one there's only one player left essentially yeah right? so then then you have um exclusivity mm-hmm. and then it goes down to signing the agreement and then the there's some like other from from the legal perspective and the integration side there are different things which have to be accounted for and like some final diligence which is being conducted to see if the transaction is is, is good and valid okay and then you essentially sign the transaction and then you get into the process of like creating the new uh, whatever company forms yeah and all all like the the operational parts that you which promise you would do to yeah. creating creating the new company yeah okay and at that point the company is essentially yours as you know yes, yours yes. being the part of the private equity yeah um okay okay and then i assume so the invest the investment bank for example they help you they they are involved throughout the process because for example kpmg and ey they just come in for those four documents exactly they do they do one report um typically also what you have is you tend to have a buy side advisor which goes in or which you typically tend to um get after the first round of bidding so where you start your normal diligence process and they tend to stick with you up until yeah also yeah up and for sure up until the signing signing point and then on like some ad hoc basis maybe till the transactions close themselves but really between the um first round of bids and the the signing of the of the company first round of bids and the signing of the company okay okay that that makes sense yeah i think and um, just because I know that's that's one thing we talked about talked about earlier, um, we can maybe quickly chat about the the conspicuousness of the Elon Musk. I was going to say, yeah. Speaking yeah. of buyouts and acquisitions, um, Elon yeah. Musk just acquired uh, Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I personally find it absolutely nuts. It's it's quite interesting because first of all, I mean, Twitter is it's 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 such an expensive fucking buyout. I mean, it's the the biggest tech transaction that you've had in recent years by a long shot. I mean, it's, and it's still not making any money, right? Yeah, and this is this is like, it, why would like, he pay so much for something? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I understand the part that the fact that you know he wanted he wants to 
have a platform with like free speech and and all that but he's not going to make any money out of it yeah i mean twitter twitter in itself is really um antithesis on what you would typically would consider for a p company just because it doesn't have very high cash flows it's mm -hmm. not in a very technological protective market yeah it doesn't necessarily have a market leading position um you can you can say there's some operational improvements to be made as yeah you can clearly see if you look at the twitter uh, share price of the past 10 years it's been pretty much flat while the yeah s&p has skyrocketed so yeah. there are clearly some operation concerns yeah so a p firm would just um, basically never buy this yeah would would definitely never buy it. and it's also quite interesting on the way the deal is being funded as currently i think musk is contributing about 20 billion in equity um, to the deal yeah which... and i think the remaining what 25 ish or 30 ish is yes yeah, so so the way it's done is so you, you, they have banked up of 12.5 billion which is being i think jp morgan no so morgan stanley gives 2 billion and they're a bunch of small banks being syndicated to which all pitch in 500 million a billion uh -huh. so it's 12.5 billion bank debt okay then it's It used to be 12.5 billion, but now it's 6.5 billion in margin loan. Um, well, okay, what's what's margin loan? So it's basically it's um, Elon Musk is taking out loan against his Twitter shares, uh, sorry, against his Tesla shares. Oh, so okay. Essentially, he's using his Tesla shares as collateral. Yeah. Um, to the banks, basically saying, okay, I'm taking out the loan now for 6.5 billion. Here are I don't know 30 billion worth of Twitter shares. Uh, if, Tesla shares, yeah. Of sorry, of, of Tesla shares. If you, um, yeah, if the if if the company if it fails, you can have the Tesla shares. Yeah. That's that sort of thing, and. Yeah. Or if the Tesla shares drop below six billion or whatever he's taking, then they would order it would automatically close that. This is actually this is actually quite interesting because and that's also a big reason why also Musk got another seven billion in outside financing. So, okay. so I think like some the Saudi prince, some Saudi prince who had a couple of billion in prior in Twitter, he's reinvesting his money. Like Larry Ellison's putting in a billion, okay. Binance putting in 700 million, and different companies are putting up to seven billion in in equity into mm -hmm. the company, um, which helps to reduce the margin loan. Because the the issue is with regards to the margin loan is. Musk has to provide a multiple of the the actual uh, value of the loan in Tesla, in, shares. In, in Tesla shares just because they are so volatile yeah and it's not like really a hard asset yeah and also I read that um, at least in the initial 12.5 billion agreement if Tesla shares which are currently at 900 mm -hmm. or thousand would fall below 550 the margin loan would get cold Right, which would be essentially disastrous for for Elon Musk. For Elon Musk, one side because he would um, have to liquidate the shares, yeah, in order to come up with the money, which would then put even more pressure on Tesla stock. Yeah, and since he already borrowed quite heavily against his uh, other shares, which would maybe lead to another margin loan. So the, the investment itself, for Musk isn't particularly without risk. Right. It would be like a snowball which, effect, right? Yeah, which you would think is crazy because he has, I mean, he has 
250 billion <laughs> in wealth, but it's just the liquidity part is an issue. And then also one thing you could see that after Musk, so after the initial announcement that Twitter got sold and Musk I think sold about 4 billion in Twitter uh, in Tesla shares, Tesla share price actually um, dropped, right? Dropped by 13%. And that was big concern. That's where he got like these outside investors to reduce the size of margin loan, because it could be concerns bets being made to reduce share price in the hope that it might get margin cold and then oh. it falling further. But then, I mean, as a to go back to the initial question of Twitter as a buyout, yeah, it's 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 a fairly shitty buyout if, <laughs> if I'm being honest. <laughs> I mean, he's not. He's definitely not doing it particularly for monetary terms. Um, just because of the mentions earlier, this, it doesn't make any. Twitter does not make any money. They mm. have, if any net income, very marginal net income. Um, they don't have the highest user growth. Um, How many users do they have? Like, I think they have about two hundred sixteen active active users, but they they, they, they're on. Yeah growing at a crazy crazy pace right i think he's one side doing it for free speech concerns and considerations and out of his belief yeah and solving also having like his own echo chamber waking up he can just <laughs> say voice, whatever he wants yeah voice his opinions too and just also like a big fuck you to the sec and stuff like that because he got <laughs> trouble earlier for saying he'll take tesla private oh um in 2018 but now he can do that in his in Twitter because it basically belongs to him, right? Is that is yeah? That yeah but he he basically he, so he posted on Twitter that he would take Tesla private in 2018. Okay. And he got the SEC wants to remove Elon Musk from his positions in Tesla because of it. Oh. Um, because they saw it as a form of market manipulation. Oh. Because he basically saying it's being acquired, which helps to increase, increase the, share, the price. share price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. But honestly, I'm quite interested to see what actually Musk ends up doing with the company, just because currently Twitter is quite heavily dependent on advertising revenue, and this is actually where one thing where I could see the deal going fairly wrong if he actually like gets rid of all sort of content moderation stuff like that, which I think in general even is hard to do because especially in Europe, a lot of the EU regulations. Or EU law is just mandating the um, content which is on private platform, with making it hard to remove all sorts of content moderation stuff like that, hate speech, right. misinformation stuff like that. And one thing which could happen is, since to make most money from uh, advertising revenue, that advertisers could spring off Twitter as a platform, which could really hurt their their revenues if Musk goes through with his plan of sort of free switching Twitter. Right, so advertisers will pull out from Twitter essentially, just be like, I don't want to yeah. be again, involved in this. As a P fund, you will look at stable cash flows yeah. risk, and that's like a huge red flag for any P fund thinking about it. I think the 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 one upside to the case is that Musk is an exceptional operator, mm. and he could get people into places and get more uh, dynamism in the company itself just run it better as, as well run right? it better um and I grow it right one thing they're, they're they're looking at for example is or what i heard is that they're looking into doing subscriptions 
So doing subscriptions for oh, different yeah. for some um, some players to pay some subscriptions. Exactly right? for different companies yeah. or different politicians, public figures mm. to pay for the certain amount of subscription revenue, or even if it's on the basis of um, like Patreon and stuff like that, where you can donate to your favorite Twitter user. Um, essentially, any way to get sort of the recurring revenue things, which is quite not, or is very valued by investors. Yeah, and and sort of implement that. And to be less reliant on advertising on just revenue, because also advertising revenue currently is being quite hard hit by structural factors such as China inflation and stuff like that, as marketing budgets have just diminished. So They've been slashed, right? Because I mean, they're, they're redirecting the money somewhere else where it's needed. They won't spend as much on marketing now. Um, exactly, and and similarly, that. also they have the same pro- uh, problem Facebook had. For example, with um, Apple introducing their privacy, new privacy settings. What happened there exactly? What what were the new privacy settings? Yeah, so um, what do you now on your iPhone where you can put on when you go on a new site and now it, every time it pops up, ask the app to track or not to track? Well, I don't have an iPhone, but Okay, I assume... so, so nowadays if you have an iPhone, Apple updated this privacy settings where now advertisers have to get sort of specific... Permission, permission to, to track you okay and you can always just click now ask app not track which makes it a lot harder for companies to pers- uh, personalize their advertising because they don't get they can't get that as much data right exactly which leads to less data which leads to less personal advertising which leads to lower click-through rates mm-hmm. leads to advertisers willing to pay less money yeah. for it and that hurt a lot of companies such as um Facebook, Twitter, and loads of other companies, as they are reliant on these cookies and insights right. um, to do it. Like Apple itself, because it's on the phone, they don't have it because they have the hardware. Or Google didn't have the same hit because you're literally typing in what you're looking for. Yeah. So they they have proprietary access to the data, but for a lot of other companies, that hurt them quite a bit. So that's maybe one thing to sort of move away from the from this advertising advertising model right right and in terms of the financing aspect of it i know you mentioned that he meant he put in just going back to that real quick because he put in 20 billion roughly of his own money essentially right yeah and then the some of it some of the remaining was that margin loan and the remaining was you said what was it a just a normal bank loan. bank loan is, does that involve, does that have a collateral or something as well? Like, how, how is that loan? Um, um, I don't think it has particular collateral. Because, like, do um, the banks just give them money because he's yeah, Elon I mean, Musk? Yeah, I mean, the the debt which they have is, is probably collateralized with different assets Twitter has as a company. Oh, it goes on, oh yeah, it goes on Twitter's balance sheet. I think Kevin on, was explaining exactly, it to me. Exactly, so yeah. it, goes on, it goes on Twitter's balance sheet. Um, that being said, Twitter does not have the greatest um, assets, or greatest like... assets. But then, but again, if if you, if you look at it, I mean, essentially, he's buying 43 billion, and the the bank loan part is 12 billion of it, which is um, a bit more than a fourth. Yeah. And we were talking about earlier, it's it's more typical for P fund to put a 60 percent, 60 percent of the the the. Or fifty percent in in debt. In debt, yeah, and the and remaining. So that's that's a fairly low percentage. And then in liquidation scenario, if Twitter would be go bankrupt, 
the banks have the highest seniority stake mm. right to the claims. So they would probably be able to salvage some value. And then also they probably get decent interest rates because it's more of a risky transaction on it. And then lastly, I think... Fuck, I forgot my point. Um, but yeah, I think... So in, 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 uh, with another question I wanted to ask as well was like, you said banks get... Um, they get seniority like they have priority, right? If it's yeah. if it's liquidated, like if what if there's not like within the banks, yeah. who gets first priority? Because like, it it really depends on the I, I whoever's raised the loan first. No, there ha there hasn't been any information, um, or at least of, if I've seen. I don't know if it's all one tranche, but typically you have different debt tranches. I explained earlier. So you, you yeah. typically have like a, a term loans. And then you have like, so you have uh, senior debt, um, then you have subordinated debt, then you have um, very junior debt, then you have mezzanine financing. Yeah. They're all different debt instruments and that's um, how they're called. Yeah, but like say you have two on senior debt, for example, it's two banks on if, senior, if, or could if, you not if have they're that? Both, if, no, if, I mean, if they're both in the same tranche, they'll split it. Oh, they'll split whatever, they'll okay. Split it. it's, it's all divided into the different tranches. Oh, okay, um, okay. But if if they are in the same tranche, then they will receive the same um, percentage payout if there's no um, liquidation value high enough to support the the claims the banks have. Right, but would they split it according to how much they have lent? Because say say Morgan Stanley gave two billion, but Goldman Sachs gave like yeah, ten. Yeah, they split. would they, they would split it in proportion to, to how much to how much they have. So let's okay. say. 10 billion salvage value, debt is 20 billion. If it's all one tranche, they get, all the banks get 50% of the money they put in. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. But yeah, but also one last interesting part is I think it's going to also be interesting to see how Musk is actually going to come up with 20 billion because he did liquidate about 4 billion in Tesla shares. Yeah, it was 4 point see, something, it, right? Yeah. I, and he said he wouldn't have to raise any more financing. Mm-hmm or sell more shares to finance this transaction. However, I'd be, would be a bit surprised if that would be the case. Um, what, do you, what do you think is going to happen? I could see him selling more um, Tesla shares because, I mean, he did sell um, quite a substantial amount of uh, stock last year mm -hmm. where he had the whole fiasco with $6 billion to solve world hunger and yeah. with the UN and stuff like that. Which he... It, the, the UN didn't, didn't like, did they end up giving a, a... I think they gave a granular accounting, but I don't think Musk actually Musk, ended up... He wasn't convinced, yeah. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not I'm not fully fully up to date in that story, okay. so... So you think that he's going to essentially need to raise more money, raise more money? Yeah, or, or he, in the end, he re-ups his, his margin loan and he, and he um, to the 12 billion... Yeah, it was, he takes it was more, prior, yeah. Just because most of the stock he sold last year, at least... There was to pay off tax bills he had on options, so oh. that was actually not money sitting in the bank. So I would be careful, or I'd be interested to see if he actually has enough cash to support the acquisition outright without selling for the shares. Right, right. And how long does do does this whole process take roughly? What do you mean the like, transaction? Process? Yeah, the transaction. So like uh, Elon, like Twitter has agreed to be bought by Elon Musk for this price, right? The, the, that whole deal that we were explaining before has essentially 
um, gone through, but like the the actual selling of it or like, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, that was like a. I mean, again, this is a bit of a different scenario because they didn't have. Um, so normally, what a company or if it would, if anyone else would have been interested, okay, um, or what a P company or any normal reason why would do, you would have like a more long due diligence period, yeah, where you analyze the company, and also you would have a process where other buyers are interested, just purely because the buyers probably would be interested. So your twit, uh, so your Google, and have like real strategic value for. For Twitter, yeah, your Google, your Microsoft, your Apple, yeah, um, your your Meta, um, they probably wouldn't be able to buy Twitter just purely on regulation uh, regulation concerns, mm-hmm. um, as the 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 yeah the trade office in the U.S. is now fairly hawkish against big tech yeah. buying other companies, so just in terms of monopoly power, that typically wouldn't be a thing, and then other P companies wouldn't be interested. In buying um, Twitter, slash, right. they probably couldn't pick up the money just because it's such a gigantic buyout. Yeah, it's like it would be if it would be a buyout on its own. It would be the largest buyout ever. Yeah, I mean, you said the funds roughly are like what 20, 30 billion anyway. So like, this is a buyout of like fifty billion. That's like two funds together. We have to put exactly. all their and money you, in and there. And you can't put and you can't put um, a lot of leverage on it. So you, yeah. it's not like you can you can use a smaller equity percentage and then fill up the rest with debt just because um, Tesla, so, uh, sorry, Twitter is not generating any cash. Right, but like, because when they sign the deal from that day forward, um, how, how does it work exactly? Because like, they sign they signed the deal and that day forward, Elon Musk owns Twitter, but they ha- he hasn't paid anything yet, right? No, I think I think there's, there's a, I think about a, they they accepted the offer and now Musk is formally in charge. But I think to Musk has about I think eight months, twelve months to to actually finalize the 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 final transaction value and come okay. up with the cash and everything to pay the shareholders. Okay, so within so, those. That... So the 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 deals through, but it can be changed on the side. Similarly, how now the seven billion in equity got committed from like these outside. Players, yeah. Masters probably still talking to different um, companies, investors to also contribute capital to Twitter. Okay, okay, cool. So he has like eight to twelve months essentially to to pay that money. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay, cool. I think we are two yeah, hours. Yeah, I think we're two already. hours and six minutes, and I think time to. That was a lovely podcast, Rick. Pod- thanks for hosting me. Oh no worries, man. Thanks for being here, and thanks for everyone listening at home as well. Very interesting. As you can tell, Chris is a very, very smart person. Um, Debatable. <laughs> and yeah, if you if you ever want to come back again, just, just let me know. You'll definitely Of course, I'm happy to. Of course. And yeah, thank you everyone for listening and hope you enjoy your day. See you next time. Bye.